Good evening. Good to see you guys here tonight. We're going to continue through the Gospel of Matthew. We're in chapter 22. We're midway in that chapter. We're going to be starting verse 15. As we are beginning, kind of to keep in mind where we're at, what's taking place, Jesus has come into Jerusalem. This is his final push before the cross. And so as Jesus came into Jerusalem, we read about the celebration, the people crying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna to the son of David, this declaration of Christ being the Messiah. We talked about him overturning the tables and declaring that the father's house was to be a house of prayer, but they've made it a a den for thieves. They questioned his authority by whose authority do you do these things? You come in here and you cause all this trouble. Who gives you the right? And he challenged them with a question, said, I'll answer you, but first answer me. And he talked about John the Baptist. You know, was he from God or was he just a man? And they couldn't respond because the people revered John as a prophet. John actually testified of Jesus. And so Jesus kind of quieted them. And then he's given a couple of parables and examples, and he pushes on, and we continue to where we are at here today. Chapter 22, we're going to start at verse 15. It says, Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. And Father, as we look at your words here tonight, Lord, may we too be amazed. Father, may we take in all these things that you said, and may we look at how our lives line up with your words and what we need to take from them. Father, may we be open to your work within us tonight. May our conversation here be edifying. May it build us up in our relationship, in our walks with you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Looking back, you've got to think, what were they thinking trying to trap Jesus? I mean, with our knowledge of who Jesus is, it just it's almost humorous. And what's 
illuminating here as they went out to lay plans to trap him. And you see, as they open up, they are just really buttering him up. Hey, teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. All they're trying to do is trap him. And their sweet words are trying to ensnare him, to lull him into this false security so that when they drop this bomb on him, they can really let him have it. And it's interesting because the Pharisees sent out and they wanted to trap him, so they sent their disciples. They didn't go themselves. They sent some of their disciples. When you got to do the dirty work, send someone else. And we're seeing the quality of leaders that they were. It's also interesting that the Pharisees went with the Herodians. Now, the Pharisees were the religious leaders. The Herodians were actually a, a political group that was connected to Herod Antipas. And they didn't get along with each other, but they were at this time. Why do you think the Pharisees and the Herodians are getting together at this point? What, what do you think? Keeping in mind some of the things that we've been talking about. Why would they want to have it in for Jesus? Yeah, I mean, they, they were at odds most of the time. But this situation, they're saying, hey, we've got something in common. What was it? It was Jesus. They didn't want. Now, why? what was Jesus doing that was causing both these groups a problem? I mean, there was one thing specific that I think combined to both of them. Yeah, I think Jesus was taking away their power. I think that's what they were upset about, is this guy Jesus comes in, everyone's celebrating him. He starts making a mess of our money situation in the temple. They're calling him the son of David. They're acknowledging him as Messiah. If he is that, what role are we going to have? And so he was taking away their power. And so now we see motivation for their alliance is actually their own greed. They wanted the power. How do we stop Jesus from getting the power? Let's have an alliance together. And these kinds of things happen all the time with governments, right? You know, oh, we'll support the Shah over here in Iran because we are against what's happening in Iraq. Oh, we'll start supporting Iraq because we're against the Ayatollah that's in Iran. And, oh, we'll support, you know, the people in Afghanistan, you know, because we're against the Russians. And now, you know, I mean, it's, there's always these things going on. We support for our own benefit and our own power. It happens politically all the time, and it was no different at this time. They wanted the power. Jesus was taking it, and they had to stop this. And so their intention to trap him was to try and take away this power that he had. And it's interesting that the Pharisees and the Herodians come together, and they ask him this after buttering him up. Tell us, what's your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not. Now, the imperial tax was probably the most loathed of taxes. I mean, all taxes are pretty much loathed, but if you could loathe one more than the other, this would be the one because this was the, the salt in the wound that said, you have to give to Rome. You are under Rome's authority. This was 
pushing on them the fact that Rome has authority. This heathen nation is now getting money from us, the people of God. And so this had especially a sour note in the people's minds. And so they they wanted to bring up something controversial. And they challenged Jesus on this because it's kind of like, this is a no-win situation. When they challenge Jesus to, to respond to this and they say, so is it right to pay this tax to Caesar or not? Well, if he says, well, yes, it is, then he's in the Pharisees' corner or he'll against them and they'll be able to tell the people, see, he's supporting this Roman government. I told you he's not what we want him to be. If he says, no, it's not, then the Herodians can go back to Rome and says, we've got someone who's usurping authority, telling the people not to pay taxes, and they could bring the hammer down. And so, I mean, this is like a no-win situation. This is one of these questions that you could tell was crafted out. How do you answer this? This is like that question, do you still beat your wife? How do you answer that? No. Oh, so you used to beat her. No. I mean, yeah. No, there's no way to answer it. It just seems like you're stuck. And it seemed like they had had it all planned out. And this is one of my most favorite scenes in Scripture. I say scenes because I picture it. Where Jesus, first of all, calls them on their hypocrisy. He, he says, you guys, you're not sincere. You're, you're playing all this out to try and trap me. And he goes right into it. He says, show me the coin used for paying the tax, which is interesting. He didn't have one. He didn't have any money on him. Again, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He, he lived an impoverished life in, in many ways. So he didn't have a coin on him. He goes, takes the coin. They brought him the denarius, which is a Roman coin. He said, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. And so then he said, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. What a powerful thing to say. It's interesting, too. It says give back. That word is kind of, those words are telling because you're, you're, you're getting things from the government, so give back to the government. But then he goes further and he says, and to God, what is God? Give back to God what belongs to God. Whose image was the coin, was on the coin? It was Caesar. Whose image are you made in? Give back to God that which is his own image that is printed upon us, created in his image. And this is just one of those moments where it's so masterfully put, it just shuts them up. To me, this is slow motion. When Jesus says, give back to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, I see him flipping the coin and it flipping, and there it is, and the light shines and it reflects, and as it hits the dust, 
and give back to God what belongs to God as we were created from the dust of the earth. I just have it. It's a, it's a moment and a movie in my head. It's just a powerful statement that deals with their hypocrisy and pushes something very powerful forward that we are to give back to God not the money that belongs to Caesar, but the life that belongs to our Creator. And that's a powerful statement. That's something that is impressing on them how important this is, and at the same time doesn't fall into their trap. Any thoughts on these verses that stand out to you? Yeah, it's a hard thing to let go of power. You know, people who are in power don't like to give it up to someone else. You know, I mean, we see that all the time, and they weren't quick to try and relinquish what they had. And, you know, again, we see there's insincerity in their motives. You know, they, they don't care. They're just trying to trap him. They just tried to craft a, a question and get a response from him that would enable them to bring him down. And that was their whole intent. And then Jesus instead brings this powerful image that just shuts them up. They heard this, they were amazed, and they left him and went away. I just, you wonder what was going on in their minds. Yeah, I mean, I wonder how many times we want Jesus to support our agenda. You know, we, we have our faith in Christ and we want Jesus to fit into the things that we believe. Last night, I had written something up and I had read it to my wife and my daughter, and I thought it was incredible. Um, I thought it was well written. I thought it was, you know, this wonderful statement. I was making this point, and my daughter, she takes after me, and so she started arguing with me about my point. And as we were going on, we were going back and forth, back and forth. Corrine, I think, fell asleep while we were arguing back and forth. And I was getting so upset because she wasn't getting my argument. And she was getting upset because I wasn't getting her argument. And pretty soon what I realized was that I'm not hearing her point. I'm just defending my own. Instead of maybe I can take something from what she's saying and actually take my point and make it better, I just wanted to prove myself right. I just wanted to kind of shut her down. And she is like me. She doesn't back down. And so we went round and round. And afterwards, I finally sat back. I go, okay, I can take the things that she said, and I can better it. But it took something within me to say, don't you think you can gain something from other people? You know, just an attitude change in my own heart that doesn't think I'm always right. And that's a hard thing for us. At least it was for me last night. And more than that, you know, it happens periodically. But I think we can all get to that place where we are stubborn and we defy what might be beneficial because of our stubbornness. He's going to buy the tape and play it back for you. Mom, remember when you said...
<laughs> but do you guys find that's the case? Whenever you're challenged, your authority is challenged, the tendency is to just respond in a way that pushes, to try and defend instead of stopping, listening, and maybe having an understanding of what you can gain from that. And so here I think it's important to see that, you know, as they were pushing, they were trying to entrap Jesus, and he just closed that door really clearly. And so that moves on. Okay, that same day, the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees are a different group. The Sadducees are more liberal. The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. They don't really value uh, the entire uh, Old Testament. They just have the Pentateuch, the five books, the Torah. That's what they consider uh, ordained by God, kind of the legalist, the laws in that regard. But they don't believe in a lot of the other things that the Pharisees would have. And so these are the people. That same day, the Sadducees. Now remember this, that they don't believe in the resurrection because it's interesting that their question as they bring it up. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. No wonder. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, You are in error, because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, you have, not, have, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Okay. Another setup. Guys who don't even believe in the resurrection are asking about the resurrection. It's, again, showing the dishonesty. And this is one of those times where, again, we have to look and see. Sometimes we can argue just for argument's sake or to try and prove ourselves right. They push this argument. This is probably an argument that they've used before with the Pharisees about the resurrection. And I wonder if this story is even true. I don't know. I just wonder. I'm skeptical. It doesn't say it wasn't. There was this guy. Maybe there was this one instance where this woman was married to this guy. And in Deuteronomy chapter 25, there was a law that said if a, a brother dies and he has no children, then the wife is to marry the younger so that that older brother can continue on his family, that he wouldn't be barren, and so the wife was to be taken care of by the younger brother. It was to take care of the wife as well as the older brother who had died. It was kind of this welfare kind of system that they had back at that time. I know it's strange to us, and I'm sure it made everyone interested who you married a little bit more, knowing you might, I might get... 
stuck with them. Um, and so they tell this scenario. Seven brothers marry this woman. Finally, she dies. And then they ask the question, what's going to happen in the resurrection? Again, we see that there are, why are they asking a question if they don't even believe in the resurrection? And I'm sure they thought this was an ironclad argument. And the first thing that Jesus says, you are an heir because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. They reveled in the fact that they thought they knew the scriptures. And Jesus puts two things together, the scriptures and the power of God. Two important things that we need. We need the scriptures for guidance, for doctrines, to keep us on the path. And we need the power of God to live the life that God calls us to live. We need the spirit of God within us. And Jesus calls them that they don't have either. You guys don't have these things. And then he says something that's kind of curious. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now, what he means by that is not completely clear. It doesn't mean that there's going to be like no gender. He's not saying we're not going to be male or female, like some of the pictures of angels you might have, those chubby cherubs that are around. But... It's going to be without the necessity of this covenant of marriage. Not totally sure what the resurrection body looks like. We know it can travel through doors because Jesus had one and he showed up in the room when the door was closed. We know that it is a body of flesh and bone as Jesus has. The resurrection, the word itself, has to do with body. There's no idea in scripture of resurrected spirits. And, and so there is a body of some sort that's different than ours, um, glorified. We don't know fully what it's like, but he says it's not an issue. The whole marriage thing isn't a problem there. And I think we get so trapped in what we know and experience here that we translate that to how it's going to be in heaven after the resurrection. We just take what we know and kind of put clouds on it, you know, and make it heavenly. Try and make it spiritual. But Jesus is saying it's not like that. And what he means by like the angels, not completely clear, except that they don't marry. And so there's no need for this covenant relationship. I don't know what it's going to be like. I don't, you know, the what happened when God instituted husband and wife back in the garden, that happened before the fall. So there was companionship before there was sin. No reason to believe there won't be companionship afterwards, but it's going to be on a different plane. Immediately we start thinking, well, is my wife going to be with me? Or because this is their argument, or whose wife is she going to be? You know, I'm going to be jealous if she's with someone else. It, we're taking what we know and experience, and we're moving it into that heavenly realm. What I think it's going to be is just a whole lot better. So much better that we don't fully grasp what it's going to be like. And so I don't know how that whole thing is going to work out. Scripture doesn't give us a lot of information, but Jesus says, you err. There's not going to be marriage 
in the resurrection. And then he pushes them to the real point because they don't believe in the resurrection. And he says, but about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? And what he does is he quotes from the law, the, the Torah. Because remember, the Sadducees, they didn't believe in the Psalms. They didn't believe in the prophets, that those were inspired writings by God. It was just the Torah. And so he goes to the Torah and he quotes from their own book. And he says, about the resurrection, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. So he quotes from Exodus. Now, what's the point here? What's he saying when he's saying, haven't you read? I am the God. Why is this an argument against their belief? Very good. It's present tense. He's not the God of the dead. He's not the God of that which is not. If they died, which is what they believe, they just cease to exist. Why is he their God? And so their own scriptures, their own writings say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That means they're existing still. They're still living, even though they physically died. And so Jesus is giving this credibility, again, to this life afterwards. And the crowds heard this, and they were astonished at his teachings. Again, he just shuts them up. I can just hear him saying this, and everyone going, oh, you know, sucking the air out of the room. Oh, good one. Ooh, dang, you got him, Jesus. You know, I mean, just really putting them in their place. <laughs> burn. I don't know. Do they still say burn? Uh, <laughs> Any other thoughts on this passage, just with the Sadducees? Any things that jump out, you guys here? Nada. Okay. Let's move forward. Hearing that Jesus, verse 34, had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Okay, get the lawyers. When you really need to make trouble, get a lawyer. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, we have to understand their questions. Rabbis at that time would divide the 613 precepts that were throughout the law, and they would divide them into those that were weighty or important and those that were light. They would put the whole order. Number one is this one, and number 613 is this one. And they would want to put this order. So you can imagine the arguing that goes on over 613 different things. Well, which one's number important? Well, that's my number 47. The number 47, I got that one 108. How do you get that at one? No, this should be your number top 10. You know, this, and they, so there's a lot of debate going on about what are the important ones. What precepts are the most important? And so the test here is to just cause a stir because no one agrees on what the most important 613 are. There's no way you're going to get all of these. So let's test him. Let's call him. What are your, what's your order? How do you place these? And maybe we can find a, a, a chink in his arm or we can find something that we can kind of break down and find out what's going on. And so, which is the greatest? What's your number one in the law? Jesus replied, 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus gives them the two and says everything else hangs on these. There is no support for any of the other commandments unless you have these two in their place. As he says this, we don't even hear a response. But this is telling us something incredibly important about God and about how God works and what God uses to move into the lives of people. Jesus tells us that God has banked everything on love. Everything. It's love that moves us to do things that we would normally not do. It's love that will take us to places we would never go except for the fact that we love and care. Greater love has no one than this than they lay down their life for a friend. Love will ask you to do more than any law would dare ask you to do. Love will ask you to give your life. And so Jesus says we are to love God with heart, with mind, with strength. We are to love God with all that we are, with heart, soul, mind. The other gospels say strength. The idea is totally. It's to encompass all of who you are. It's to encompass your emotion. It's to encompass your thought process. It's to encompass your abilities. That we are to use our lives as a response love to God. What does John tell us? We love him because he first loved us. It's a response. And so our lives are to be living responses to God's love. And it's supposed to encompass all of us. Now, think about these challenges that have been taking place. These guys who are trying to trap Jesus. They want to find out what's the most important. And Jesus throws these out there. How do they stack up against them? These are commands, love God, and then he doesn't leave it just love God because we would probably be good with that. Okay, I can love God. Me and God, we got our own thing going. I just can't handle these people. So uh, me and God, we're going to go do our own thing, and I'm going to just say goodbye to the rest because they just give me a headache. But Jesus combines them. What's the greatest? He doesn't leave it with one. He, he actually uses two. He's cheating. But he's doing it because you can't separate them. And love your neighbor as yourself. 
John tells us, how can you love God who you have not seen and not love your brother who you have seen? If you love God, you will love your brother also. That's what John got from walking with Jesus. He he gathered this understanding. If you're going to love God, then it's going to go this way. You can love God vertically, but then it has to show up horizontally in the world around us. Because don't tell me you love God if you don't care for people. It's real clear. So there is now a test how you can tell if someone loves God. They're going to love people as well. It doesn't mean that they're not going to have arguments. It doesn't mean like, oh, I just love everyone, even these people who murdered, you know, these people at the theater. It, it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the concern for others and not just your own life. It has to do with giving of yourself to God and to people. And Everything rests on this. Do you realize how powerful that statement is? On these two things, everything rests. Forget the 613 precepts. All you need is two. Live by these two and you are doing great. Well, but I like number 47. Yeah, but if it doesn't line up with these two, it doesn't hold water. It's going to fall. Any thoughts on these verses? Yeah. And we can do the same thing, huh? We have our own precepts, you know, what spiritual is. You know, well, if you're spiritual, you'll do these things. This is my top ten precepts. You know, and Jesus says, no, here, here's everything hangs on these. And if your precepts don't hang on loving God and loving people, then they don't hang at all. Love is definitely a choice. I mean, this is the... The idea of choice is central to the narrative of God throughout Scripture. I mean, from the garden, all the trees you can eat of don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They had the freedom to make the choice. They chose. You know, as they go through Deuteronomy, I set before you death and life. Choose life that you might live, you and your family. Follow God's precepts and you will live. Joshua, you know... Me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Choose this day who you will serve. Throughout the narrative, God is saying, make the choice. Make the choice. Because if you don't make the choice, if it's not done because it's something you want to do, then it's going to be out of coercion, manipulation, and then it's not genuine. Then there's going to be a rebellion against it. But if it is something you choose to do, then it involves you. And love is a choice. As I've said before, you can know the right thing, but if you love the wrong thing, you'll make the wrong choice because you will do what you love. And so God says, what I want of you is your love. And, and that's an amazing thing of all the things that he could ask of us, the, the greatest commandment, it's love me and love others. That's what I want. Choose this. And so there is this incredible just revelation of what God is really about. 
especially for the Hebrew mind that grew up with the 613 precepts, thinking that it's a matter of religious duty. You have to make sure all these things are lining up. And we're comfortable with that duty. We always go back there. There's security and having the ducks lined up in a row. We like it like that. It helps us feel good. Everything's in order. Everything has its place, a place for everything. And then Jesus says, the precepts, everything, they hang on this. And what Jesus is saying, too, is every other law God had implemented sprung up from these, sprung up from this idea of love. When God would put regulations upon the people, it wasn't to burden them. It was to help them. The Ten Commandments. It wasn't, I'm going to put these heavy commandments on you. No, it's don't kill each other. (laughs) Who's that for? You know, it's for us. Don't lie to each other. Don't steal each other's stuff or covet each other's stuff. You know, don't take someone's wife. Those things are for our benefit. And so all these laws are based on This, even the Ten Commandments, the first are about loving God. The rest are how we deal with one another. Love God and love your neighbor. And there's so much to be said in that and how we represent Christ in these issues. You know, um, yeah, it's kind of tragic that people would look at Christianity and say, well, they hate homosexuals. You know, or they hate these people. I mean, that's a tragedy that that would come out in that way, that people would have that idea, which was one of the things my daughter and I were debating last night was the idea of what Christianity is compared to what it originally was. Uh, (laughs) It was pretty loud because we're Italian, I guess. I don't know. It was... I don't know how Kareem could just fall asleep in it. Um, <laughs> it was it was repetitious. It went on and on and on and on and on. Um, anyway, let's continue. We'll finish here. Uh, Jesus then, while the Pharisees are gathered together, he asks them. Now, I got to tell you, after just hearing Jesus just shut these things down and just end them, Close the door as tight as the door can be closed. It just slams in their faces. Your arguments just, boom, just hit you in the face. That didn't go anywhere. And then Jesus says, let me ask you something. I would be shaking. I'd be like, oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no, it's his turn. You know, oh, I just. So he gathers them together. They're gathered together. Jesus asked them, verse 42, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is like 
the supreme I, I, this is kind of one of my fantasies i guess is someday to be able to to be like jesus to the point where i could talk to someone and they would not dare ask me any more questions i i wish i could have done that with my kids you know dad spoke don't dare ask him another question he just shuts the door so tight it's like no one dares ask him any more questions now this question is really important because it is going back to very when he came into jerusalem and they said who gives you this authority what gives you the right to come in here say these things who do you think you are and jesus is saying This is who I am. You see, the only one who David could call Lord, David's Lord became David's son through the incarnation. The only way that David's son could be his Lord is through incarnation. God becoming flesh. That's what's happening And so Jesus is confronting that. He's painting the picture and he's saying, what does two plus two equal? What does David's son, David's Lord mean? That his son is Lord. How can that be? God became man. This is heavy stuff. They would be sitting there and would be like, how do I process this? This is going against everything I have ever thought. God does not become man. That cannot be. But the scripture does say that. Whose authority do you come in? You're saying that you're God. Which he said a few times. Which is why they were so upset with him to them this was blasphemy this cannot be and so instead of believe what was going on they're going to find a way to get rid of him any thoughts on these last verses let let me let me push here and and dialogue with you on this because i think what you're saying is really important and i think what you're wanting the security is also really important. And and so what I think happens sometimes with me and maybe with you too, is because I want security. So I have to trust that, okay, the only way I can have security is if God knows what's going to happen and is in charge of everything that's going to happen. But at the same time, there is responsibility for the things that I do the things that this guy did at the movie theater, the things we all do. What if things happen for a reason, but the reason is because people choose to do certain things? And let me give you a a biblical framework, Jonah. It was the will of God that Jonah went to Nineveh. Jonah didn't go to Nineveh. Jonah went to Tarsus. Throughout that dialogue of Jonah and the story, God never forced Jonah to go against his will. He made him willing to go. You know, there was the fish and there was 
getting thrown up on. Here's the shore, Nineveh's that way. You know, you can you can go back to Tarsus if you want, but Nineveh is this way. And my point is, God has put everything on love, and love requires choice. And so, the choices we make are the things that determine the future that we have. With freedom comes incredible responsibility. We all want the freedom to choose, but we don't like to be responsible for the choices that we make. But that's the only way freedom works, is the responsibility for those choices. The good news is God is able to work all things out for the good, for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. That's the good news. It doesn't mean that everything's good. It doesn't mean that everything, quote, has a reason. Sometimes the reason is because there's a guy who's psychotic with a gun. Sometimes that's the reason. Sometimes the reason is because there is a physical condition. Sometimes that's the reason. But there is a God who is behind all things working through our free will to accomplish things that are going to be best for you, best for me, best for all those who love him and are called to his purposes. With that comes a little bit of a insecurity because I can't just throw it all up there and say, okay, God knows, and it's all he's going to make it all happen because God has said, you're going to make it all happen, but I'm going to help you. I'm going to keep pointing you in the right direction. I might have a fish come along. I might have something else happen. Things are going to happen in your life that are going to keep you moving to the place where you need to be best. And I'm going to work that way. It's like us with our kids. You know, our kids will make a decision and, oh, no, what have you done? This is a bad decision. You know, you bought what? You know, you bought a car with the money you had, and it's a bad car. Oh, no. Okay, let's make the best out of that car. You know, it's a simple example, but just give you an example. We can take the situation as it comes and move it to the place where it can be better. I think God is challenging all of our lives to do just that. He, he's challenging us. Here is your freedom. Where are you going to go? Because I have given this to you. It was that way in the beginning in the garden, and it's that way to this day. It is our choice. God will not make the choices for us, but he will hold us responsible for the choices we make. It's real easy, and I, I've done this a lot throughout my Christian life to say, God knows. Or for, there's a reason for everything. But I hear sometimes coming back at me, the reason is because that's what you did. Well, there's a reason for everything. No, the reason is because this is the choices that he made. I hope what this does is push us further to want to follow and make the right choices. I think that's what the intention is, is to push us to make good choices to help us be responsible for those decisions, not overwhelmed with them, 
because we all make bad decisions. Jonah should have went to Tarsus. He could have saved himself three days and a lot of grief. We just, God will take you wherever you're at, steer you where you need to be. Every time you make the choice and say, ah, what did I do? Come on, let, let's, let's go back this way. And I don't know if that makes sense to some of the things that you're talking about. Because it is hard to find security in our world. No, I think they're important thoughts. I really do. And I think, you know, especially as we see some of the things that here are people who were religious, who were insincere, you know, who were misrepresenting what they were supposed to be. That happens a lot. That happens, like you said, with our government. It happens with religious leaders. It happens to the point where you can feel like, I just can't trust. And you can get into a place of despair when you see nothing that you can trust. But then in the nick of time, Jesus shows up, you know, and says, you can trust me. And you can bank on me and these things. And then when you start making those choices that start steering your life, you're going to find your life starts flowing with other people who are making similar choices. And then pretty soon you're going to find someone and say, you know what? I can trust this person because their convictions are like my convictions. I want to love God and love my neighbors, and they do too. It doesn't mean like they won't hurt you or, or things, you know, disappoint you at time. But you know what I mean. You, you, there'll be someone who's not going to stab you in the back, betray you, use you. You know, there's always the potential, but it's worth finding that person to risk those things. And, and so following Jesus steers us to a place of health to a place of health in our soul, you know, and health in how we start to, to see the world and see things. It steers us to a place that can be better, you know, in a lot of ways, if that makes sense. But I really appreciate you sharing that, man. I mean, that was phenomenal. Any other thoughts? Yes. You know, I think, I mean, this isn't in, on the subject, but I, I think it's important to recognize that God has put within every one of us potential beyond our ability to comprehend. You know, we read Esther, we read of things that she did, and we think, oh, my gosh, or Nehemiah or Joshua, and we think, oh, wow, but they were people of like passions just like us and Paul and you know, how could he go through all the, but he was a man just like us. And we might not be as well known, but I think if we would live to the potential that God has called us to live, we would have so much more of an impact on not only the lives around us, but on our own life. But we are lazy. We don't listen. We're afraid. We don't step out in faith. We don't trust. You know, I think Erwin McManus said that if you're not terrified, then you're probably not living the life God has called you to live. If you're not terrified about what you're doing, you're probably not living 
the life that God has called you to live because it seems like everyone God calls, it's pretty terrifying what he calls them to do, but it's exciting. It's not terrifying like a horror movie. You know, there's someone behind the door. It's terrifying like I don't know what's going to happen. It's uneasy. It's a little uncomfortable. It's a little insecure. Kind of like we were talking about Sunday, about that port, wanting to find a port we can stay in, and God saying, no, you need to go out in the ocean. And so I think God calls us to live lives that are sometimes a little bit terrifying, but oh, so rewarding. So just like Esther. You know, it's interesting, too, in Paul's Romans letter in chapter 8, where he says, all things work out to the good for those who love God and are called to his purpose. In that same passage, he says, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. Those go together. You know, God is working all things out, but there's going to be suffering, but it's not worth comparing. There's something more that's taking place in you that the sufferings can't be compared to, and God is working all things out for the good. And so there is that journey. I mean, who here hasn't gone through suffering? You know, we all have. This world you will have, tribulation. Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world, Jesus said. And that's where we need to trust. Do you have anything to say? You'll ask me when I get home. <sighs> what about this? Let's pray. Father, I love how your words spark conversation. Your teachings provoke thoughts that search within our own hearts and souls the things that are happening. Lord, you, you divide between bone and marrow. You illuminate, Lord, areas of darkness, and you, you push into our lives, Lord, your, your truths and your presence that sometimes are a little uncomfortable but at the same time are exactly what we need and very fulfilling. So, Lord, I pray that the things that we read tonight will be food for our souls for the days and years to come. Lord, that these words will remain with us and we will remember and allow them to speak into our lives and to change us, God. And Father, I pray that your hand be upon all of us <clears throat> as we move forward, Lord. May we have the boldness to <clears throat> trust you for the insecurities that we have, the things that we don't know. May we have boldness to live for you in the face of opposition May we not allow fear to take away our freedom to live the way you've called us to live. Thank you again for this time, Lord. Bless the remainder of our time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.